Playlist with Ben and Fiona. Masterpiece, I'm going to call it. I freaking love this film. Quite a distracting fat suit. Welcome to The Playlist, where we talk about movies and TV shows that are worth your time. I'm Fiona Williams, and I'm joined by my co-host, Ben Ewan. Ben, what are we going to talk about today? Hi, Fiona. We've got a great show today. We're going to talk about The Lattice Voice, the new uh, Russell Crowe drama that's out on Stan. And because this is the 100th episode of The Playlist, we'll be taking a look at a few movies that have hit the elusive, certified, 100% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes. The old tomato meter. And then we'll be discussing what we've been watching. But first, the loudest voice. Television is the most powerful force in the world. It's 1995 and media executive Roger Ailes, Russell Crowe, is being let go from NBC after a scandal, setting the tone for the rest of his career. Speaking of career, Ailes managed to limit his non-compete clause to existing news outlets, so when Rupert Murdoch, Simon McBurney, backs him to launch the Fox News Channel, he's free to carve out a singular news voice targeted at America's conservatives. People don't want to be informed. They want to feel informed. As we see Ailes scrape together his fledgling news network and battle the kangaroos in the boardroom, we also see glimpses of him as a sexual predator, and his sometimes uneasy personal relationship with media executive Beth Tilson, Sienna Miller, who he would later marry. There's an important story to be told here about the political influence that Fox News has held over America and the men who stood behind the curtain, which is no doubt what attracted Tom McCarthy of Spotlight fame to write and produce the series. But I'm not sure that this show is it. What did you think, Fee? I I was very much on board for this waiting for it, do you know what I mean? So, like, yeah. this is very much in my lane. I've certainly followed all of the news stories about these people, mm. the rise and fall and death of Roger Ailes. So it was in, I, I was fascinated to see how they would play out in a dramatised form and especially curious to see how Russell Crowe inhabited the body in all literal ways um, of <laughs> Roger Ailes. I felt like uh, quite a distracting fat suit. <laughs> It has to be said. At first, very much so. He very much acts with the girth. Like you see mm. him strain a little bit, getting out of chairs, and or you hear the chairs creak too. A lot of scenes he's eating and having conversations over food. With all the scenes with Sienna Miller start, they're all just having dinner and he's offering mm. her a little bit of his food, like he's offering a little bit of a career path. Yeah. But I, I settled into that and, um, yeah, I, I got past looking at how Russell Crowe was playing Roger Ailes. Yeah, I like where it's going and I'm going to stick with it just to see how it plays out, but um, at the moment it's just setting everyone up and I enjoyed the first episode, the way it built, because it is called The Loudest Voice. He is speaking very quietly in the lead-up. Throughout most scenes he's always got the right temperament in the room. He, he's the smartest man in the room, he likes to think so, but then it builds to a crescendo, this final scene where he is literally the loudest voice in the room, but also he gives this rousing speech about the silent majority and giving them a voice and where have we heard that before lately? So I, I do like the way... It's written and directed. You mentioned Tom McCarthy created and wrote this one. As you mentioned, Spotlight also did The Station Agent. He has written the series, but some of the directors on this, Stephen Prius is going to be doing an episode, and this premiere episode was directed by Carrie Scogland, who she's done a few Handmaid's Tale episodes. Yeah, so, you know, it's got some high-caliber directors behind it. I'll follow it through. You went Well, yeah, I mean, I like Russell Crowe playing these real-life characters. I think that uh, he one of his best roles was in The Insider. Yeah, sure. And, uh, again, put on the pounds for that one. Yeah. 
So, you know, in that role, he was a whistleblower in the tobacco industry. I think that he is a very fine actor. I think that, you know, he gets sort of the the twinkle in his eyes there. Um, you sort of see that charm behind, you know, what is a very unattractive exterior. Mm-hmm. But I still, I, I couldn't really get past that makeup job um, for, for both him and uh, Sammy McBurney playing um, yeah. Rupert Murdoch. Yes. I thought that was a bit unfortunate. I think also he doesn't land the Australian accent. He does not. And and it's kind of odd for, you know, you've got sort of Russell Crowe, New Zealand born, but, you know, sort of Australian adoptee. We claim him. Yeah, yeah, doing the American accent and then uh, a British actor not quite getting the the Australian accent, right? But mind you, Rupert doesn't have an Australian accent anymore. It is a weird accent to do, but he doesn't get it. Yeah, the, the, the first scene of him speaking is uh, a press conference and for the first few minutes really of the scene you're wondering, oof, that's not really Rupert, but he's yeah. giving it a red hot go. Yeah, because there is the American twang in with Rupert's accent, but it's, I don't know, the gruffness. And Rupert seems really nice <laughs> in the first episode. <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't know. I'm wondering whether how he's going to play out Rupert really throughout the, the course of this series. It's yeah, He's not really a, a lead character in this first episode. Yeah, I think there's sort of something potentially uncomfortable with the show as well. I think uh, because you are put in the position where you are kind of rooting for Roger Ailes <laughs> and I'm not sure that we need to be put in that position. I And, and I feel like Potentially this story could have been told. And and that's not to say that through further episodes it's not yeah. going to develop that way and we're going to start to see, you know, particularly some of the women's stories um, yeah. come through. But and and that might so that might be a very deliberate decision to sort of set up this guy so that we see then his downfall in future episodes. But I did find that uncomfortable that we're mm. very much kind of put in his position. I have faith that we're going to go the way you're <laughs> hoping. That's kind of why I lent in it all, I think, because I I don't think it's watching Roger Ailes build a successful network and we're rooting for him the whole way through. That's I'm certainly tapping out if that's where this goes, but I've, mm. I've got the faith that it's not going to be like that. And certainly the hints at the harassment that's to come or that has happened and, yeah, there's yeah. little jarring flashbacks or flash forwards or mm. you're not 100% sure where the timeline is of things. Yeah. So, yeah, I have I have solid faith that I think this is going to go the way I hope it does. Yeah, I, I can see that that's where it's likely to go. I think that maybe an issue with the show is that I think it's already, it's preaching to the converted. For sure. <laughs> I do think so too. Yeah, it's this is not for your Fox network viewers at all. They don't want to see the story of mm. the founder of their favourite network and his demise and when he got caught for sexual harassment. No, this is for people, I want to say like me, who watched it and were very happy to see him have his incredible downfall. Yeah, you're right. I, I, it's for the audience who watch the documentaries and read all the New York Times pieces about this. Yeah, which is clearly an issue in the US media in terms of covering politics. Mm-hmm. In, in some ways it's, it's very much the subject of the show that the creation of Fox News was a real driver of this kind of bubble mm-hmm. media. I felt like it was fairly flat, sort of very straightly, told. I, I would have liked some more style and, and humour. I think when I think of something like um, People versus O.J. Simpson yeah. and the way that they took a real life story with kind of well-known actors playing 
recognisable characters and really injected a lot of humour into it. I think that there would have been a, a way to do that with this. It's funny, I was thinking the same thing watching it, thinking of that's kind of my barometer for, for this. There were elements of it. I, I particularly enjoyed Russell Crowe throwing very serious side-eye to um, Ian Ray that Rupert Murdoch's mm. Do I See, yeah. who he sort of marked him from the start <laughs> of you're someone who's got to go. So there's some quite enjoyable moments of him clocking Ian Ray in the room and thinking, you're toast, buddy. But you're right, there's not a lot of humour yet. I'm thinking there will be, well, I think it might be a little more playful maybe in the telling, but no, the first episode doesn't have a lot of that. Like I say, like it just builds to that moment of the channel launch and, it, yeah, it's all setting the circumstances in which the Fox News Network, news in inverted commas, uh, was <laughs> launched in the late 90s. And I think after a show like Succession, for example, yes. which was based around the Murdochs, but kind of satirised that corporate world and, you know, even something like the newsroom that tried to tell a story around very kind of ideologically driven, in that case, sort of very progressive, you know, voice within that kind of uh, news cycle. I do feel a little bit like I've been here before. So I, I did feel like I don't know what this had to offer beyond what I could have learned in a documentary. Yeah. No, that, that's fair. I do, like it has very solid production values, but it still feels a little salacious. You're gawking at it rather than feeling embedded and feeling emotion in the scenes. I was actually thinking of, you know, the Australian miniseries around Kerry Packer and it, mm. this is in that vein. It um, is. You know, it, it's elevated somewhat with the production values and with the A-list you know, Russell Crowe in the lead. But it, it reminded Naomi, me a little Naomi more of Watts that. Naomi Watts will be coming in later. Yes, of course she will, yeah. Mm. So it had more in common with that kind of style of telling the rise of a media mogul than something like Succession or the people of Hesus I.J. Simpson for that real-world dramatisation. Yeah, <laughs> that's where <laughs> I landed. And, you know, I'm still going to watch, I think, the curiosity of watching what will play out. Yeah, I don't think it's high art by any means. We'll see. <laughs> I'm going to keep watching it and we'll... Yeah. Well, for those interested in learning more about Roger Ailes, we actually do have a documentary, Fox News Divide and Conquer, on SBS Viceland this week. And of course, it'll be there on SBS On Demand. And the episodes of The Loudest Voice are dropping every Monday on Stan. Those who keep track of such things, and because Ben mentioned it in the intro to the show, this is our 100th episode of The Playlist. Woo. Woo. <laughs> it's your second, Ben, but it's good time to... Uh, yeah, I've got yeah. some catching up to <laughs> You've heard all of them, I'm sure. Mm. So we thought rather than take you on a little trip down memory lane over our past 100 episodes, we thought instead we'll take the magic number of 100, look at some movies that have scored that elusive 100% on the tomato meter on Rotten Tomatoes. Which we all know is very difficult to do. There's only a handful of movies that have really done it. It's true. You can't please all the people all the time, except for these movies apparently. Um, and They're great movies. They are great movies. And not only that, we have chosen these particular movies because they are available at SBS On Demand. So you find out about them and watch them. For your viewing pleasure. Oh, look, Absolutely. So, Ben, what's up first? So let's start with Monsieur Chocolat, which is about a clown. His, his performing name is Chocolat, played by Omar Sy, who in the 1800s became really the, the only black performer within France. And it's about his experiences, both positive and, and very negative. Mm -hmm. 
and, oh. and his life story, really. Yeah, as we say, it is set in the 1880s. So there is depictions of racism here that, you know, are, well, I don't even have to say, horrendous. And, uh, yeah, so he's, he's very much, he played the role of the black clown to a white faced clown as well. It's sort of a buddy comedy tragedy mm. um, biopic in some ways. And Omar Sy plays him. Um, and he, of course, was made famous through The Untouchables yeah. you know, a few years ago. Um, very heartwarming film. Oh, very much so. He throws himself into this role quite literally. It's He plays a clown, so there's pratfalls all over the shop. Mm. And he and James Thierry, who plays um, Futit, who is his counterpart so that they rise through the ranks of French society and when performing it's a little bit uh I don't want to put it the same foot because I didn't like that film but like Green Book (laughs) in the same way in that um when you're performing people celebrate you when you're not not so much and that Raphael the performer Chocolat that's his real name so yes it shows the contrast between when society will accept you as a black man in, in Paris in the 1880s and when they won't, when you're off stage. So, yes, of course, it's a historical piece, but very much parallels to present day and have things changed, just putting the lens of racism on on society. Well, it's very good. It made me think a bit about The Greatest Showman, yes. you know, big, big hit from recent years, and the way that that had taken the P.T. Barnum story and kind of twisted it from the reality. So, you know, in The Greatest Showman, P.T. Barnum is is now the, the kind of hero of the outcasts of society and yeah. through um, participation in his circus, they uh, they kind of get to find their own, own voice and, mm-hmm. you know, when in fact in reality he was exploiting these people for his own commercial gains. Mm-hmm. And I think in this film you get a bit more of that sense of reality mm. in comparison. Yeah, no, it's more grounded that way for sure. The way it works best for me is watching them perform, the two actors in the lead here, James Thierry and Omar Sy, the way they play clowns and the physical comedy and the rest is all sort of a bonus. So that's Monsieur Chocolat and our next 100% fresh film is <laughs> Bandit Queen. <laughs> Bandit Queen, uh, yes. I, just, I was just laughing at the heightened introduction for such a brutal film. <laughs> But yes, it is Bandit Queen, uh, the 1994 film by Shikar Kapoor. Um, the, it's a biopic of Fulan Devi, the Indian woman who embraced a life of crime after enduring a child marriage, several rapes, and later entered parliament in her later life before being assassinated in 2001. But the film was made in 1994, so it's more the story of her early life and her fame slash infamy as the Bandit Queen of India. So this film, it's a story of a warrior woman, um, a warrior queen who rose to the top in a man's world and um, she won the hearts and minds of the general public. And it's probably no coincidence that Shikhar Kapoor then went on to make films like Elizabeth and mm. the, so, you know, also about a, <laughs> a warrior queen who won hearts and minds. So well, this was a real breakout hit around the world. Absolutely. No, it really was. Like early SBS yeah. kind of classic film, I think. And, you know, the film had a troubled path to the screen, certainly in India. It was the subject of multiple censorship court cases and which were landmark at the time. Mm. It is recalled quite often when there is a new censorship breach in, in India because it doesn't shy away from the brutality that there's some pretty severe depictions of rape in, yeah. in this film. I think um, people might have a perception of Indian cinema being Bollywood oh, yeah. and, and, you know, sort of working within a formula 
And this is very much not that. This is sort of, you know, a very sort of striking social realist film. Absolutely, yes. No, if you think you're going to watch a Bollywood movie, then you're very sorely mistaken here. And, you know, I mentioned its trouble path to the screen and Fulan Devi even, she distanced herself from it and tried to sort of block its release even, which sort of points to the fact that it's not an authorised biography. So... That's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, it's it's just something to take into consideration that adds to the layers of complexity about this uh, very complicated film. I do think it's interesting, Sheka Kapoor, so th- th- from the success of this film, as we said, went on to work in Hollywood and the UK and has never gone back to make an Indian film again, mm. which uh, I think, you know, we've seen with Australian directors as well. I just think there's sort of something interesting about losing those cultural, really striking cultural voices to Hollywood. It's just another example of that. Absolutely, yes. And Band of Queen really is one of the bucket list kind of movies. Like it should be one of those, you know, 100 films before you die kind of piece. So, yeah, if you haven't seen it, you absolutely should. Uh, And it's worth a rewatch as well. What's next, Ben? So next up is La Haine, a French film, again from the mid-'90s. This, again, was a, a really big hitter around the world telling the story about three disaffected youth from the outskirts of Paris, from different migrant cultural backgrounds and just how over one night they get drawn into a world of of violence and hate, which is what the translation of the title means. Mm. And again, it was another breakout film for all involved, really. I mean, Matthew Kasovitz directed this and Mm. he's... You know, actor director of note ever since. Friend of the show, Vincent Cassell, is in this, and this was kind of his very powerful breakthrough role. He plays yeah. Vince in in the film, and longtime listeners of the playlist, I can't remember what episode it was, but uh, yeah, I <laughs> forgot the ending of Lahaine and uh, <laughs> asked kind of a dumb question. Anyway, um, so yes, this is really provocative and powerful. It it is set over the course of a day. It's got a ticking clock kind of element to it. It's all black and white. It takes place in the wake of kind of a riot and there's a kid who, second-generation Arab, I believe, who is in critical condition after being beaten by police. So it's kind of about the mutual hatred between the police and the kids. You know, tension is boiling over and we are right in the centre of it here. I was a teenager boy in the mid-'90s when this came out and I do remember just the impact that it had, I think. This was sort of the the, um, Tarantino era of cinema yeah. and this film kind of got grouped in with that in a way you know and people who sort of really were into this you know very auto driven masculine version of independent cinema got kind of sucked into this movie as well which is great that that was transcending language and and we were starting to see these these other um you know very arresting films from around the world yeah and you know it is a contemporary story like it was shot and set in 95. There were news reports similar to this. There were, you know, bomb scares and whatnot, and it was very much taking a temperature of the time. Still entirely relevant if you <laughs> want to have a watch now. So it, it was shocking to people when it premiered in Cannes, and when films do premiere in Cannes, you get the police escorts and whatnot, and the police actually turned their backs on. <laughs> on they didn't want to be seen to be endorsing this film in any way because it's, it's a difficult one. Um, so it... Obviously, that's great promotion for the film too, may I just say as well, to say that. Um, but it did happen. and um, It always helps. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the films, the police, turn their back on. Also, it, importantly, it's dedicated, quote, to those who died while this film was in production. So, it, um, you know, it was quite a tense time. 
Mm. That's a really well, good film. And very a very different film to our last big hitter. Uh, <laughs> tell us about Tampopo, V. Yes. <laughs> Wildly different. We said they were an eclectic mix. So the last 100% tomato meter film we are going to profile that you can watch on demand is Tampopo. So this one is uh, Jutsu Utami's masterpiece, I'm going to call it. I freaking love this film. Mm-hmm. Um, it is joyous and weird and fun and it's one of the best pairings of food and film that are out there because it's about the love of noodles and the joy of a perfect bowl of noodles and also it's about film and it just celebrates the form and and it plays with the form of making a film but it's surface it's sorry if I'm all over the place here but the film is a little bit too so maybe that works (laughs) (laughs) that's my get out of jail free card but um, the surface story is of a mediocre cook who she's being schooled about the art of perfecting her recipe for noodles and it's known as a ramen western and it a well-known genre absolutely yes should be more of them well i think it peaked with this so maybe not (laughs) um and it demands respect for noodles but also for film and the opening scene which i love and always think about it whenever anyone's making noise in a movie theater (laughs) that's Mm -hmm. pissing me off there is um a couple burst into a cinema and have a lavish roast sort of prepared for them with champagne in the front row and uh, gold class I think it's called (laughs) pre-gold class but yes a precursor to that and the man in the couple he's complaining about people eating chips in the cinema very noisily sort of uh, and then shouts down someone who eats a particularly noisy packet of curry flavoured chips so anyway one for the ages I'm rambling a bit but I love this movie yeah, it's a, it's a good one while you're watching it on SBS On Demand to crack open the noisy packet of <laughs> chips too and uh, and be shouted out by your, you know, sort of housemates and uh, <laughs> so forth. I think that there's a, um, yeah, really wonderful um, film festival to be had with these movies about food and, and the passion of food. And it's funny, I mean, food is, it, it just proves the point how visual food is because yes. obviously we can't taste through the screen, but you you feel like you can. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I think that this movie will definitely leave you hungry. Definitely. I was going to say you should eat first. And or I during. Would, well, during, sure. Yeah, because there are lots of shots of noodles, as you might expect, and people savouring food, and it, it's just about the love of food. And um, I would suggest going to our... Friends at SPS Food for a good noodle recipe. Why don't you make yourself a pot of noodles and watch Tampopo? Now that movies are so mobile, as in you can literally watch them on your phone, you could also just head down to your local ramen joint and uh, eat while viewing the movie. Fair point. Yes, you could. (laughs) If you're lazy. That's a lazy option for you. And I mean, yes, it is about portability, but this is a film I think if you've got a big screen, <laughs> big screen phone or airplay it to the restaurant's television, I don't know, it's, it's a joyful film, so watch it on, a, on its biggest screen. Oh, that's a good tip. <laughs> well, you've got a few noodles. So now we come to the part of the show where we talk about what we've been watching. Ben, what have you been watching? So I caught the new Spider-Man movie, Spider-Man Far From Home, which is the latest in the massive MCU Marvel franchise. I think, so this is the first movie that's come out post-Avengers Endgame. Okay. So it, it kind of picks up the planet 
you know, after the significant events that have occurred in that movie. <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> you gonna be the next Iron Man now? Well, no, I don't have time. I'm too busy doing your jobs. What? Oh, I'm kidding, shit. I'm kidding. Look, keep up the good work. Because I am going on vacation. And it's a good time. So I think that uh, what it made me think about is, is how much of a cipher that character of Spider-Man really is. We've seen in the movies in, you know, not too long a space of time, three different actors playing him in in different iterations. And then I think nothing demonstrates the point better than the really fantastic animated film Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which came out last year, mm-hmm. um, which really was about all the different incarnations of Spider-Man and what he can represent to a, a very you know, diverse and eclectic different group of characters. And that was, that was a really wonderful film. Oscar winning. Yes. Well, this this film won't be winning Oscars, I don't imagine. But uh, I did very much enjoy Homecoming, which was the earlier iteration in, in this sort of Marvel universe. Yep. And I think what it does really well is it lowers the stakes in comparison to some of these Marvel movies. It's not really about the world ending and, and needing to be saved. Peter Parker is a high school kid. It's m- a much more diverse portrait of an American high school than than we've largely seen in a lot of teen movies. Yeah. And in this case, they're on a um, school trip over to Europe and he's got something that he wants to get off his chest in terms of his affection for MJ played by Zendaya. Obviously, uh, things start to go awry as uh, particular supervillains emerge and he's forced to pull on the costume, although being away from home, he doesn't want to give away that he is Spider-Man, so he needs to figure out a version of his costume that won't give that away. And so an amusing part of the story is that the Italian media um, start to call him the night monkey. Um. (laughs) So, you know, we could say that this is the first in the franchise of night monkey movies. (laughs) Probably can, yes, coming soon. I, I saw this um, with a cinema full of teenagers and they cheered and applauded through the whole thing. They were, you know, really on the edge of their seats and that made it a lot of fun. I think mm. it is that kind of movie, you know, where where people were sort of breaking into applause at significant moments. And I think the teen moments are really sweetly played. I think that it's sort of a bit more slapstick than maybe what you would expect from uh, one of these superhero movies. There's quite a few... Pratt falls and Peter Parker slamming his head into into objects for laughs. So, mm. um, yeah, it's got a bit of a sort of loose kind of slightly dopey feel. <laughs> <laughs> and like I said, the, the stakes aren't actually all that high. Sure. Is it meant to be like sort of a breath after the enormous profundity, if you want to call it that, of um, Endgame? So here's, here's a light one to kick the story along a bit. Yeah, and I and I think sort of that fits, you know, with just that that kind of wisecracking character of Spider Man as well. There's sort of some emotional resonance as a hangover from those, from the Avengers movies, but it's very deliberately not sort of with that kind of self importance or weightiness. Good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Does it have some more hints to next films after the credits? It's a Marvel movie. Oh, okay. Um, Endgame didn't and wasn't everyone upset about that, but anyway. (laughs) So that's Spider-Man Far From Home and it's out in cinemas everywhere now. (laughs) 
everywhere, every half hour on that half hour. <laughs> what have you been watching, Fee? Well, not that. Haven't seen that one, um, in case that wasn't obvious. I recently went away for the weekend and did the holiday house thing and picked up some DVDs at op shops and saw Singles, the uh, Cameron Crowe film circa 1992, the peak of grunge, you know, the story of some 20-somethings trying to find their way in the world uh, and their interconnected stories. If you can't find love, you settle for sex. I'm on the bed right now. Wearing something really outrageous. I think you got the wrong number, lady, but I'll be right over. How did you feel when you spotted that one in the op shop <laughs> and then spied that one up the back? <laughs> yeah, it was, hey! Because <laughs> I had fond memories of it. I, I don't think I've seen it since yeah. probably 1993 is probably when it came out here. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I had a fondness for it. I remember the music far more than I remember the film. Um, mm. Were you, you know, regular of the... Giving the soundtrack a play. Absolutely, yeah, and I had that on high rotation on the Pluto mm. player, Ask Parents. Um, <laughs> uh, so this one, Bridget Fonda, Campbell Scott, Kira Sedgwick, Matt Dillon, it's the sort of long-haired grunge rocker. Mm. It's a bit of a comic role. Look, it's fun. And I, not having seen it since back then, it struck me how much shows like Sex and the City ripped it off. <laughs> sort of it... I wouldn't have picked that link. Right? Yeah. But, um, you know, the early episodes of Sex and the City had people talking uh, to camera. Ah, that sort of Vox Pop. Yeah. Yes. That's, the, that's right. They were singletons, you know, looking yes. for love in the big city. And, yeah, that's what this Ah, so interesting. Yeah. And, of course, Friends, you know, it's sort of precursor to all of that. Melrose Place a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't say it set my world alight, but it was fun to rewatch it. And um, Kira Sedgwick is always great. And Bridget Fonda, I mean... It was a loss when she gave up acting. Um, mm. But, no, she just lights up the screen and she's just – she's sort of the emotional yeah, part of the film. Yeah, she's gorgeous, just great. Yeah, yeah. There's also plenty of cameos from Seattle grunge Absolutely. Rockers. Chris Cornell, it's nice to see him on screen. Um, Eddie Vedder, of course, has mm. role. Yeah, it's very much set and takes part and has enormous cameos from from all the key players in the, in the grunge scene. Are we missing these kind of 20-something kind of group hangout movies these days? I can't think of a recent one. Well, I don't know, but also there wasn't as many ways to watch things or, that you know, people, it was kind of like this was at the cinema so that's what everyone watched. There was no Netflix. There weren't a million things to watch at any given time back then. But it's a good time capsule to, to mm. go back and, and see. I don't know. Are we? I guess TV is where people yeah. flock now and find yeah. a tribe. It's another example of, yeah, where TV's sort of taken over these kind of stories. Yeah. So that was a fun rewatch. And so that was singles and, I mean, you can find it at an op shop if you <laughs> scan the DVD aisles. <laughs> Close to a holiday home near you. <laughs> yes, in the greater central west of New South Wales. <laughs> so that's it for our show this week. Uh, just before we go, we talked about the final quarter, the Adam Goods documentary last time, and uh, a listener did send me a message that um, I was talking about the Australian dream, which is the Stan Grant documentary about Adam Goods, which premieres at the Melbourne International Film Festival. And just uh, letting me know that Adam Goods is involved in that one. So if you want to see the version of the story as told by Adam Goods himself, then check that one out. Um, and the final quarter, it's now been announced that will premiere on 10 on July 18th. So definitely recommend that you tune in to 10 and, and uh, 
view that one. So that ends our instalment of Corrections Corner this week. <laughs> yes, sorry. Yeah, if you've got corrections to make about this sh- week's <laughs> show, then uh, please get in touch with us. Our Twitter handles are at Ben Nguyen TV. And I'm on Twitter at anything but Fifi. And of course, you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at SBS Movies. And make sure you subscribe to the playlist wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a lot of stars, leave a nice review because it helps people find the show. The playlist is produced by Jeremy Wilmot, who makes sure that we say the correct things most of the time. (laughs) Except that one time. (laughs) (laughs) Until next time, thanks for listening. 